The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to the show they call Squawk Box with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are headlines. Uh, the Federal Reserve, well, reiterating, I think, really, that it's uh, signaling to uh, keep rates higher for longer, but expecting to slow the pace whilst ruling out any prospect of uh, cuts this year. Uh, U.S. majors posting their first positive day of the year as investors digest those minutes, as well as a dipping manufacturing and the robustness in the labor market. China's services sector struggles again in December, the fourth straight month of contraction as rising COVID rates sap consumer demand. And the EU backs a testing response on travelers from China, while the World Health Organization accuses Beijing of providing an inaccurate picture of the COVID situation on the ground. And Amazon confirms it will slash more than 18,000 jobs. A sharp increase from initial estimates as tech sector layoffs gather pace. So welcome to the program, everybody. Um, good to have uh, you join us once again uh, for another edition of Squawk Box. And we kick off the program focused on the Federal Reserve minutes. Officials have reaffirmed their resolve to bring down inflation, backing fresh rate rises this year. Minutes from the policy group's December meeting showing central bankers cautioned against an unwarranted loosening of financial conditions and emphasized getting back towards their 2% target with no official predicting rate cuts this year. The comments came as the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point last month, ending a string of 75 basis point rate hikes, lifting the Fed Fund's rate target <coughs> range to between 4.25 and 5, uh, sorry, 4.5%. Well, while the risk of tightening too much was acknowledged, the risk of tightening too little was clearly seen as the bigger concern According to the minutes, 17 of 19 officials projected rates at or above 5.1% this year. In September, not a single Fed official forecast rates above 5%. Meanwhile, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari kicked off a fresh year of monetary policy debate with a call for at least 100 basis points of rate hikes this year, calling for a pause once the benchmark rate reaches 5.4%. And on a programming note, we will hear more from the Federal Reserve later on today. Our colleague Steve Leesman will be speaking exclusively with the Kansas City Fed President Esther George at 14.30 CET. That will be followed by an interview with the Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic at 16.00 CET. And on the data front, U.S. jobs openings fell less than expected in the month of November. According to the latest JOLTS report, the number of available positions came in at 10.46 million from an upwardly revised 10.51 million in October. The number of quits, they rose by 126,000. 
Separately, the ISM manufacturing index fell for the second straight month to 48.4 in December from 49 the month prior. And I'm sure Steve has a view on the jolts as well, his favourite data set. Well, yeah, I just think I think it's informative. I think the jolts is stunningly informative and they are stunningly robust at the moment. Now, we've got two days now, Karen and Jeff, two days more of big, big data. The ADP private sector employment report followed by the non-farm payroll as well. And quite frankly, we in the real world want to see job creation. The people on the Wall Street want to see, well, what do they want to see? Do they really want to see recessionary indicators? And I think that's probably a question for our next guest, because really the robustness of the job market, as shown by the huge number of vacancies that are still out there, even if you think, and a lot of people look at the jobs and go, well, they're a bit inflated. Uh, advertisers put on perhaps a little bit more froth onto what's actually available if you actually go for the jobs as well. But you're still talking about 10.46 million vacancies, which is a vacancy to unemployment ratio of 1.74. There are 1.74 jobs out there for everyone who is unemployed as well. And big, big numbers. Uh, and bearing in mind, there were uh, pre a pandemic, only 7 million jobs, give or take the change, uh, available out there compared with the 10 plus now. So you can see the kind of scale we're talking about. US markets did rally, but they didn't get any signals from the Federal Reserve, quite frankly, and uh, there was anything different. The Fed is sounding hawkish to a man, to a woman at the moment, uh, and they want to see the job done on inflation. They don't want a redux of what happened in the 1970s and to get this wrong too early uh, and then have a problematic spell thereafter. And as I keep pointing out, and Again, the experts know this far better than I do. We've got one waiting in the wings. The inflationary episode of the 70s, if we are comparing now to then, the inflationary episode of the 70s lasted until the 80s. And that's the point, wasn't it? It was about eight years, 74 to 82, if you look at your inflation data. Let's have a look at the treasuries and see what they're doing as well. Uh, 3.71 is the 10-year paper. 4.4 is where the two-year note is currently trading. Dollar crosses. There's been some really interesting moves already so far this year. Dollar yen we keep looking at, don't we? Because of the new hawkishness of the... Be there is no new hawkishness, is there, over at the BOJ? Or is there? I mean, that's what you're betting on, isn't it? That the yield expansion means something more meaningful for when Karodasan hands over to his successor as well. Well, let's just see what happens there as well. Euro dollar 106, pound trading 120.40. Not much of a reaction to Rishi Sun uh, Sunak's big announcement yesterday, was there? Uh, dollar yuan trading 6.88. And Jeff, I keep mentioning this expert waiting in the wings. He better be worth it. I'm sure he will be. Let's let's get straight to Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist at High Frequency Economics and a regular guest on the programme. Happy New Year, Carl, and thanks so much for joining us this morning. Let, let, let me just start, if I might, by asking you, as I pick up from Steve, Steve's analysis of the markets and the Fed minutes, why we saw yields and the market reaction that we saw. Bond yields ultimately lower even as the Fed appeared to reiterate its continued tough stance on inflation. Yeah, I, good morning, Jeff, Karen, Steve. Um, you know, the Fed yesterday told us nothing we hadn't heard before. Uh, the market just heard it anew in the new year. This is the time of the year when people are forming their views. So uh, every little statement makes a, a bigger than proportionate difference in the first few days of the trading year. People are looking for direction. What we saw yesterday, I think, was uh, the first uh, guidepost on what that direction should be, which is that it hasn't changed from last year. It hasn't changed from Fed Chair Powell's uh, press conference after the last meeting. Rates are going to go up. They'll go up more. The pace may slow, 
but uh, rates will remain higher for longer than people are probably thinking. So get used to it. The, um, I mean, obviously, we, we, we listen to a grandee of the market like you closely, Carl, but somebody else who I pay attention to, Byron Wien over at Blackstone, who's got a piece on um, CNBC Pro, basically arguing that the markets rebound mid-year after a bottom on the expectation that the Fed is largely done and we have a mild recession. How does that fit in with your thinking? Well, if you ask me what I think as opposed to what the Fed thinks, uh, my expectation is uh, here at High Frequency Economics, what we're telling our clients is that we're not looking at a wage price spiral, at least not yet, and the Fed is doing its job to prevent that from happening. But we're looking at a reaction to the explosion of money that was uh, generated, that was uh, created by the Fed uh, in response to the COVID lockdowns. And that excess amount of money in the economy uh, is leading, has led to excess spending beyond the economy's capacity to produce. And that's what's driving prices up. Where we are right now, we've got a percentage point gap between price increases and wage increases. You can't explain 6% price increases with 5% wage increases. You, it just doesn't add up. So if you ask me, what we're going to experience is a stabilization of prices at current levels, which means the year-over-year -year change in prices that people think of as inflation is going to drop off over the course of the year. That's going to make real interest rates very, very high. And we may get a recession out of that, but we'll get that recession closer to the end of the year rather than at the beginning of the year as real interest rates start to bite. Carl, what we're talking about here is a very different scenario around inflation for a lot of policymakers. And Neil Kashkari over at Minneapolis was talking about this, comparing it to Uber price surging. So if we can call it maybe Ubernomics here, uh, that you've got this a very strange environment, prices, profits, wages all going up and you have that supply gap. But can the traditional method of uh, jacking up interest rates really deal with this type of fundamentally different inflation? Yeah, I mean, my personal view is that the Fed's quantitative tightening, its sale of bonds from its balance sheet, thereby reducing the money supply, that's much more important to getting prices stabilized right now than the hike in interest rates. But the high interest rates for longer is also important because the labor market is tight, despite the jolts, uh, the, the jolts numbers tell us that, that there are still a lot more jobs available than there are workers to fill them. So the Fed wants to make sure that a wage price spike doesn't occur. To rise to the point that uh, uh, Steve made a few minutes ago, um, yes, the labor market is tight, uh, but that's and that's what was causing, uh, it was a wage price spiral that caused inflation back in the 1970s. But I believe that what caused prices to rise over the last two years is more an excess of demand over supply caused by printing too much money. And it's a different process. It's something we've never seen before. And I think policymakers are putting out two fires at once. They're trying to, to dampen demand by withdrawing the excess liquidity from the economy. That's the QT bit of it. And then they're also trying to keep the labor market from overheating, which it is on its way toward, but not quite there yet, uh, by raising interest rates. Dig a little bit deeper in the demand story. It feels as though we haven't seen that switch yet to the COVID, uh, post COVID style behaviors, supersized spending, first on products, then on services. And you know, a lot of uh, central bankers are watching some of these patterns very closely. It feels as though the C suite has just caught on this year and looking ahead, hence the, the level of layoffs we're now seeing from major firms from the likes of Amazon to Salesforce. But when do you think those behaviors flip back when people first up are willing to pay for more to have access to certain services and products? 
And down the track, they simply cannot because the fundamentals of their own balance sheets catch up with them. Yeah, so the labor market is the real tight knot in the middle of this whole conundrum here. You know, the labor market is tight. And even though we are seeing layoffs, 18,000 layoffs uh, in an economy that creates a quarter of a million unemployed people a week, well, that's not a very, very big number. We get a lot of anecdotal evidence. But the big picture in the labor market is that, right, for the moment at least, there are more jobs uh, being offered than there are people available to fill them. And that's a sign of labor market tightness. So yesterday's jolts data confirmed that the Fed is on the right track by worrying about the supply of labor eventually leading to increases in wages. But for the moment, at least, the wages are not dominating the picture. As an economist, you would like to think that as the economy slows this year, and we think it will, we don't think it's going to have a recession, certainly not in the early part of this year, and possibly not at all. All right, as the economy slows, the labor market will loosen up and uh, then we'll start to see some of those wage pressures coming off. And that'll give the Fed the signal that it needs toward the end of the year to maybe flatten out the trajectory of interest rates. But we don't see rate cuts coming with the unemployment rate as low as it is right now, not in 2023. A couple of quick questions from me on asset classes. Um, a lot of people made money on the dollar last year, one of the few places they did make money on in terms of the hedge fund as well. Is the ramifications of a dollar downtick, well, A, do you think we're going to get a dollar downtick to follow your scenario for a bit of a slowdown? Uh, and B, what are the ramifications? Well, uh, I think that we are going to continue to see a strong dollar because I think the Fed is going to remain more hawkish than uh, any of the major currencies that are out there. I think certainly the ECB is already looking at, uh, if you adjust the numbers properly for our wage support programs uh, in Germany, we're seeing unemployment rise, uh, even though the headline showed that unemployment fell, but guest workers are up. Uh, in Europe, we're seeing employment flatten out. I don't think the ECB is going to have the same commitment to hiking interest rates and to keeping rates high as the Fed does. So spreads will continue to favor the dollar. And to the extent that that's a dollar positive, well, that should give us a, a stronger dollar. The U.S. economy, I think, is going to fare better than most other economies, certainly among the G7 in the year ahead. And I think that also draws money into the U.S. dollar. So I don't see the dollar sliding back. And I think there's potential for upside in the dollar. Uh, although, of course, there are so many geopolitical risks out there that could drive money either into or out of the dollar that the, the currency is really a wild card right now, Steve. It's really hard to make a, a prediction on it. I agree with you entirely. It's a wild card accompanied by the wild card that is the oil price as well. Carl, do you have anything wise uh, to tell us about where you think the oil price is going or what could happen next? As you say, we've got a war going on in, in mainland Europe, geopolitical problems as well. We don't know about Chinese demand. Could the oil price be the X factor on how the economy performs? Well, oil is only is one of many prices that are out there, and oil prices are are down year over year changes in oil prices that are what drives the year over year change in consumer prices that we all think of of inflation. That's falling off to zero right now. In terms of the next three months, which is probably about as far out as we can go with clarity, you know, China is going to be a, a major drag on the world economy. You know, we don't know what the COVID situation is in China, but we do have anecdotal evidence of fact 
shutting down and of millions of people being sick, uh, maybe tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people by the time we're done with a super spreader event coming at the end of this month with the migration around the Chinese New Year. I think China falling off the grid for at least a quarter, probably two quarters, probably not getting back to full growth until the end of the second quarter. I think that reduces world demand for oil by enough all by itself just to ensure that we don't go back up again and probably trade lower over the course of the next few weeks. To me, that's the biggest uncertainty, but the biggest fundamental out there. And I think it's pretty clearly going to be a negative for oil prices. Carl, we're going to say goodbye to you, but nice to see you this morning. And thanks so much for giving us your time yet again. And we look forward to more of you in uh, 2023. Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist at High Frequency Economics. And I mentioned that uh, at Blackstone story. Analysts are weighing the chances of a mild recession on their list of surprises for the new year. You can read the analysis. Byron Wien um, has started uh, or started this list of annual surprises back in 1986. So he's been delivering one every year from his old days at Morgan Stanley. Now at Blackstone, you can see it, of course, on CNBC Pro. Isn't the problem is it's the same scenario as everyone else again. Mid-year bottoming, rally thereafter. Yeah. My worry is every single, just like when we had all those transitional economics on inflation a year or so ago, they're all saying the same thing. Uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the, the question is, do you weight some people's analysis higher than others? Uh, yes. <laughs> right. Um, Byron Wynne's been in the game for a long time. Uh, it doesn't say he always gets it right. A lot of these guys don't get it right, and they definitely didn't get it right last year. But, I mean, you know, you've got to have something to work with, I guess. Yeah. So apparently I mean, the, the pivot's on the shelf, uh, according to point number two. Mm. Uh, the Federal Reserve remains in a tug of war with inflation. Pivot's on the shelf, along with the word transitory. I think you'd already put transitory on the shelf back in 2022. So uh, a couple of points there. I was trying to boot it about 18 <laughs> months earlier, but no yeah. one was listening. Well, I mean, l let's face it. Quite frankly, what we do every day is rather absurd. Because we, we in the whole industry... Getting up at three o'clock in the morning, you mean? Well, we in the whole industry are in the business of trying to predict the future. If, if, if you look at any of this analysis that anybody in the financial services sector gives you, it is basically trying to be Mystic Meg, rubber crystal ball, which and come up with a forecast that may be somewhat close to the which truth. Which is why looking back gives you more evidence about what's going to happen going forward, which is why we all spend so much time looking at the economic history, the market history, when few people, many people, don't even bother. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, tr the trouble is, um, then you get a year like 2022, where having looked back at 2021 gave you no help whatsoever in negotiating. And the, pr the problem with most analysis is, and I think everybody understands this, that what most people do is they, they take out a ruler and they look at where the line was in the past and they just tr tend to draw a straight line reflecting where they think that then yeah, goes. Agree. And that was the problem with last year. That's exactly what I agree. That was the problem with last year. You know, you've got to look at the you got to look at the story in the round. But uh, but again, I will repeat, you know, we've all had a wonderful career here doing this. But mm. quite frankly, it's absurd trying to predict the future on the basis of where we've come well, from. There's a couple of nuggets here. One around policy error. We've been talking about that right throughout last year, that there is a risk of policy error. So uh, the line here from Blackstone is that it overstays its time in restrictive territory. That is one of the risks that it sees. So obviously we just had the Fed minutes, the wash up that, hey, there, there's no uh, return to 
cutting in 2023. That, that is a market wish, not something the Fed's likely to embark upon. The other big point here, I think, for those looking for timing the market, Blackstone is saying despite Fed tightening, the market reaches a bottom by mid-year and begins a recovery comparable to 2009. Yeah, but that's what I just said. It's like same old, same old. From anyway, I don't know. We're going <laughs> around in circles. There is, a, there is also, I think, a seasonal tendency to be incredibly positive at the start of a new year, isn't there? Really? That, that's another feature that I think comes up again and again in stock market almanacs, that people start the year always overconfident about what they expect they can achieve personally and what they think the markets will deliver in terms of profit. And unfortunately, well, that, when the rubber meets the road, by yeah, and large, when the, the reckoning happens, quite often that is yeah, not. Yeah, but that's because the industry is built on the premise that I will make you money. And in order to make you money, 90% of them only go long. And the ones who do go short, some of them pretend to be hedge funds, but there are some real brilliant hedge funds out there. But a lot of them aren't really hedge funds. They're just indexation um, devices for following what everyone else is doing, ergo the calls on the market. Right. So in order to make money, they need assets to go up, most of them. They and need assets as well. <laughs> hey, sir, good morning no. to you. Have I got uh, an idea about a stock But when they've got the assets, then they need to create a return on those assets, yeah. where they're in having promised I can outperform, blah, blah, blah. Go yep. yeah. I mean, just around the timing, though, because if you're following that tried and tested method of sell in May and go away, that doesn't fit with a stock market bottoming mid-year than going up. So uh, you might miss the timing if you're sticking to the sell in May and go away theme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. OK, what does the IMF uh, Deputy Managing Director think? That's Geeta Gopinath, of course. And she has urged the Fed to stay the course on rate rises, warning the US has not turned the corner on inflation amid a surging labour market. Speaking to the Financial Times, Gopinath said she supported a terminal rate of 5%, essentially backing the US central bank's latest dot plot. Elsewhere, Gopinath says Europe is in for a longer period of restrictive policy than the United States and that China is set for a significant downturn in the new term, in the near term amid soaring COVID cases. Would you like to look at Asian indices? I'm going to show you anyway, even if you don't. Uh, so what have we got? Shanghai Composite, up 1%. Hang Seng, up 1.4%. Elsewhere, the uh, Nikkei over in Japan is up four tenths of 1%. Some data out of the mainland market today. China's services activity shrank at a slower pace in December as rising coronavirus infection numbers hit supply and demand. The Kaishan services PMI rose to 48 in November from 46.7 in November. Business confidence rose to a 17-month high. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, just break down those numbers for us as we also continue to track the latest rise in infections. Good morning to you, Karen. Happy New Year to you. Well, as you sort of say, it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of that data because we did see a fourth month of contraction with a reading of 48, albeit it was at a slower pace. And the Taishin survey has put this down to a few things. One of those was that uh, this business activity and new work actually wasn't hit as hard in the month of December. Inflationary pressures also eased further and actually business confidence hit a 17-month high. So that was the good news. The bad news, however, was that the employment picture still doesn't look so great. We actually saw that companies were talking about losing workers because of the pandemic, uh, but the businesses also had to shed some of their staff uh, because they were trying to contain costs. At the same time, they were also raising their prices. So that was certainly what we saw in terms of the picture with the Taishin survey and if we look under the hood. But what this was, was the first snapshot really of the services sector 
Canada since China dismantled the harshest elements, of course, of that zero COVID strategy. We've got to remember, of course, this looks at the smaller and private firms in China, which have been harder hit, uh, certainly by the pandemic. But they did manage to actually hold up slightly better than the bigger and state-owned firms. We, of course, got that uh, figure those figures out over the weekend. So it does seem like the uh, smaller firms are doing slightly better. Uh, this is, of course, important to look at because the services sector making up for around 60% of the Chinese economy, uh, and it is a big generator uh, of jobs, of course. But what this seems to be is less about the COVID curbs now uh, with the December data and more about these rising cases. So what these companies have now been facing uh, is what has become a selfish imposed lockdown from a government imposed lockdown and of course that's no good for things like bars restaurants and shopping malls so that is why we got to that number that we got today uh, in terms of moving forward of course uh, the big question is will things get better well we've got the Chinese New Year around the corner uh, that should perhaps help things on the services sector side of things uh, but if you take a look at those consumer staples they're sitting up over four percent today what that tells us is that investors and the markets are largely looking past this downbeat data that we are getting. They are looking towards the reopening. They are looking towards the recovery and they are betting on the Chinese consumer. Actually, the liquor stocks are very much helping the staples, consumer staples today. They've been sitting up around 5% higher. Uh, So certainly investors do seem to be betting, as I say, on the reopening, uh, but also these stimulus hopes. Guys, back to you in London. Terrific, Sam. Thank you so much for that. EU officials uh, recommending that travellers from China require proof of a negative COVID test to fly, but they're not imposing restrictions across the EU. We'll talk some more about it after the break. And for more on the Fed minutes, as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Let's uh, talk about China. The country has confirmed it's set to reopen its southern border with Hong Kong for the first time in three years. As Beijing relaxes its stringent COVID rules from January 8th, Chinese and Hong Kong residents will be able to cross the border on special tourism and business visas and will not be required to hand in a negative test on arrival. The World Health Organization, meanwhile, says the latest data from China shows there are no new COVID strains. But officials say a number of hospital admissions and deaths appear to have been underreported. The WHO says it remains concerned over the situation in China and urged the government to provide more rapid and regular data. EU officials are strongly recommending that travellers from China should have a negative COVID test before flying. What does that mean? Just strongly recommending. Is that rule? Anyway, I'll find out in a minute. The move comes after several countries around the world impose restrictions on arrivals from China with the UK, the US and Japan amongst those demanding a negative test. 
Sylvia, good morning to you. Good morning. You're missing Brussels. You haven't been there this year. <laughs> I have not. Five no, days in and you haven't even been there. What's going on? Standards. Yeah, so what does that mean? Strongly well, recommend. It's all a bit EU-like to me. In a way, but let's... The, the point here is that it's health. The health policy is a, a matter for the member states. So the EU cannot say, you have to do this, you have to do that. The EU just recommends to the member states right. to now asking uh, travelers coming from China to present a negative test. Those travelers will also be asked to have to wear facial masks in those flights. And there will also be some random testing on arrival and all of this has been announced now because of course china is about to ease quarantine restrictions for people arriving in the country they're also about to resume issuing visas for those seeking to go abroad and therefore when you look at the european union they are concerned about the fact that there's been an uptick in covid cases in china and as well about their immunization rate we know, for instance, that the elderly population in China does not have the same level of immunization as uh, others in China. And therefore, the EU is putting forward these measures to prevent seeing further cases across the EU. But of course, China has already said that there could be repercussions. And therefore, it remains to be seen how the Chinese authorities will be reacting to these steps that the EU is now preparing to put forward. Um, how does this work then, given that we've had three countries already stand up and say that they are imposing these restrictions? What is it? Italy, France and Spain have already said we're imposing these restrictions. If other countries in the EU are not imposing the restrictions, will there be any monitoring of the passage of these Chinese travellers within the EU? So that's where the problem could arise for the EU because of course you have Schengen, you have the free travel area and therefore if someone from China arrives say in Portugal and then he goes to France, it does not have the same level of restrictions as flying directly from China to France. Having said that, it's why we're seeing the EU, the 27 coming together saying, let's coordinate our measures, let's all of us ask for these negative tests to prevent these uh, essentially discrepancies among the 27. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.